Welcome to the CU20 podcast. We are a group of young adults from Montreal. We discuss topics about faith around Jesus Christ and questions of life in modern world. Today's podcast is about the parable of the shrewd manager. It's in Luke 16. We will be unpacking this confusing parable and we'll find applications for our lives today. Hope you enjoy. Luke 16 verse 1. Jesus told his disciples, there was a rich man whose manager was accused of wasting his possessions. So he called him in and asked him, what is this I hear about you? Give an account of your management because you cannot be manager any longer. The manager said to himself, what shall I do now? The master is taking away my job. I'm not strong enough to dig and I'm ashamed to beg. I know what I'll do so that when I lose my job here, people will welcome me into their houses. So he called in each one of his master's debtors. He asked the first, how much do you owe my master? 900 gallons of olive oil, he replied. The manager told him, take your bill, sit down quickly and make it 450. Then he asked the second, and how much do you owe? A thousand bushels of wheat, he replied. He told him, take your bill and make it 800. The master commanded the dishonest manager because he had acted shrewdly. For the people of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own kind than are the people of the light. I tell you, use worldly wealth to gain friends for yourselves, so that when it's gone, you will be welcome into eternal dwellings. Whoever can be trusted with very little can also be trusted with much, and whoever is dishonest with very little will also be dishonest with much. So if you have not been trustworthy in handling worldly wealth, who will trust you with true riches? And if you have not been trustworthy with someone else's property, who will give you property of your own? No one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. So this is largely said to be the most confusing or difficult parable that Jesus Christ spoke of. It's essentially about using funds, but it's wrapped up in this interesting story that we can't quite get a grip on. Uh, I love to kind of hear stories of like bad investments and people who bet, kind of bet on the wrong horse or people who tried to do something real sneaky and didn't get away with it. My favorite uh, case that I heard of recently was a guy a couple of years ago who bought uh, 5,000 fidget spinners uh, <laughs> thinking that it was going to be this great investment and ended up selling 13 of them. <laughs> I was left with like thousands and thousands of fidget spinners and no one to buy them. Sad, but funny. <laughs> we have a story before us that causes a lot of grief because what exactly is Jesus Christ trying to say here? Because he uses this parable and there's, you see in verse 9 that I mean, he's doing something throughout it that's kind of shady. You know, he's telling people to fudge the numbers. Uh, and then his, his manager commends him for it at the end, says, oh, that was kind of smart. What is going on? Like, why would he com be commended for this? And that being aside, what exactly is Jesus meaning by this? Are we supposed to kind of have any kind of relationship with money? Like, ah, do whatever it takes as long as you get rich and, and then, you know, do something nice with that money. I don't know. Like, what, what's the point of what he's saying here? How do we make sense of the story? We're going to pray and then we're going to get into it for today. So would you please join me in prayer? Thank you, God, for bringing us together today and for showing us your word. And though this is a difficult passage, Lord, we know that you speak through it. We know that there is great wisdom in this. 
uh, it doesn't take a long time to see it, uh, though it does take a little bit of time. And we, we praise you, Lord, that you've given us the space and the resources to understand your word. And we ask, Lord, that it wouldn't just stop with understanding, but that as we understand this, we would also be ready to apply it to our lives in bold ways. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So what's going on here? Firstly, we need to remember that a parable is a parable. It's a story that's made up, that's designed to teach a lesson, to kind of metaphorically get a point across. And we need to understand that there's a metaphor in, in, at play here. Jesus is not actually speaking much at all about financial practices, so to speak. He's speaking largely, more largely about, like, when we think about resources, how should we best use them? But still we need to try to make sense of the story. And there's a lot of things that happen here that are a bit culturally specific, uh, and we need to kind of look into it. When we see what the, this dishonest manager is doing, essentially this is a manager who has been accused of being very, a bad manager, of wasting possessions, and it seems that the accusation is well-founded, uh, and the, the master of the estate, the one who he is managing the funds for, fires him. But before he is fired, he's given a, a, just a chance to get his, get his house in order, and then he's gone. And he uses this window of, a, of opportunity to, to kind of set himself up for the future. He knows that he's not going to get a job like this again. So he has a couple of options before him. He can work as a day laborer, and he's like, oh, I'm, I don't want to do that. I'm not strong enough to do that. Or he can beg. And, you know, he's too ashamed to beg. His pride is there. And so he says, you know what I'll do? I'll make friends for myself. I'll make friends by calling the master's debtors in and changing, like lowering their, the, what they owe. And by doing so, I'm going to make friends for myself. Uh, and so when I'm out on the streets, I'm going to be welcomed in to their uh, estates and I'm going to be, you know, they're going to they're like me as a result of this. And so he does this. He welcomes them in one by one. And he says, look, take, you know, the first guy, he halves the amount of money that, or the amount of uh, resources, oil, that uh, he owes to the master. Second guy, he knocks like, what is it, like a 20% off of it. And they're great. They're happy to do this. And then the master finds out somehow. He must find out because he commends the dishonest manager for his actions. He commends him because he acted shrewdly. And so the question is, well, why on earth would he be ha happy about this? Or why would he at least be commend him about it? Why wouldn't the master be furious about this? Like he's doing something that's costing the master money, isn't he? And also, if he found out about it, wouldn't he just reverse the discount? Wouldn't he just, oh, so, okay, you think you can get away with that? Well, nup, and he's just going to bring it back up to the original amount. And so what's, what commentators say is what's likely happening here is that this dishonest kind of sneaky dude was doing something that was probably uh, unlawful in the beginning. The Jewish people, the, the nation of Israel, were not actually allowed to charge interest on things that they loaned to each other. And so they found kind of workarounds to this. They tried to sort of read between the lines and try to kind of get around this law and still try to charge interest anyway. And there's some interesting ways they did this. But still, there was a general idea that charging interest was wrong. And so what is likely the case here is this manager was charging exorbitant interest on loans, these huge interests. And so when he has found out that he's doing some shady stuff, he brings these people in and he cuts the interest off of the top. And he's essentially saying to the people, just pay back the principal. 
Like, you know, for the first guy, pay back 450 because that's what you loaned, what you were loaned in the first place. And so when the interest is gone and maybe the fees or whatever that he put on top are gone, he's not going to make any money from this anymore. And he wouldn't anyway because he's about to lose his job. But also, the master is not in a position to be able to do much about that. Because if he comes along and says, no, 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 you really owe me the full amount, it's going to be like he is charging interest on these loans. And he's going to come across as being harsh and being irreligious. And so by actually just allowing this to happen, he saves his image. Because now he is completely separated from the whole wheeling and dealing that took place in the first place. And he's not able to really jump in and change the situation. He's essentially been outwitted. But he's been outwitted in such a way that he, the, ma the master can't really say anything against him. And so it's kind of an impressive thing that this guy's done. He has, in one move, uh, done something which cannot be undone without the master losing face, and also secured friends for himself, because now he's essentially given a huge discount to these people who owed a tremendous, and, and actually this is huge quantities that we're dealing with here, owing a tremendous amount of money. So the master is, I think, rightly kind of impressed by, the, by the, the, the shrewdness that this man has shown. And there's a big difference between commending him for his dishonesty and commending him for his shrewdness. Uh, W.T. Manson, one of the commentators on this passage, says that you know, there's a difference between saying, I applaud the dishonest steward because he acted cleverly and saying, I applaud the clever steward because he acted dishonestly. This guy was dishonest. He was a crook. But in this, in this case, he acted cleverly. He did something clever, and that is undeniable. It reminds me of there's this great uh, website uh, that's called ATBGE. Uh, and essentially, that stands for uh, Awful Taste But Good Execution. And it's all of these examples of people who have done something typically fashion-related, like gotten a tattoo of like SpongeBob or something like that. And it's like, that's a horrible tattoo, but it was really well done. Like, it's a really amazing piece of art. Just terrible taste. And it's a similar like this. You're like, oh, this is, the guy's clever. He's a crook. Like, he's really bad. But he did a clever thing, and you can't say anything about that. He sure, it took swiftness and shrewd action to secure the future for himself that he needed when these resources were gone. And so he used the resources he had at hand in the very short window of time that he had to secure his future. And if you look at that as a principle, just the idea of using what you have in your hand to secure your future, that's what Jesus Christ is talking about here. And he's using a particularly negative example because he goes on to say, look, people of, the, of this world are good at this stuff. They're good at using the things they have in front of them for securing their future. They understand how the world works. They, they, you know, they're going to use whatever means necessary to get by. And they're good at thinking of their physical future and planning and preparing for it. And he's taking that as an idea and he says, you children of the light, as he goes on to say, or people of the light, we need to be better at this. Better at it, not in the sense that we are willing to use the same methodology or aim for the same things, but better in the sense of the shrewdness we have in thinking of our own future and planning for our own future right now. He's saying people of this world are smart with their money and forward thinking very often. But what they're thinking about is this reality. We have a totally other perspective. We have an eternal perspective that we need to think about. 
And when we think about it, it should cause us to be wise with our money, shrewd with the resources we have, clever and quick with what we have to us. But that type of thinking is going to lead us in a radically different direction. Christians are not called to be shrewd in worldly ways, in undercutting other people, in, in doing manipulative things, in cornering people to make sure that we get our own way, which is kind of what this guy is doing. He's doing really shady things. But we are called to show shrewdness, cleverness, in light of eternity. And when you think about it just for a moment, there's all these implications of what it means if we are to live in light of eternity. When you think about the fact that our life is going to be eternal, we're going to keep on living. And there are things that we do now, ways that we use our finances now that will affect that eternity, that we will spend forever with God and with others. How does that change the way we use our money now? How To see your life as only just beginning. And even when you get to the end and you're an old man or woman, you're only just beginning. How does it change the way you spend your time? How does it change the way you spend your money and what you focus on? To live in light of eternity has huge implications. And one of the big implications is how we use our money. And that's what Jesus Christ is pointing us to now. It would be wrong of us to have the mentality that some people have had with to think, well, how can I use my money to get to heaven? We've seen bad examples of this throughout the ages. We've seen how people have thought to use their money to kind of gain favor with God. We can look at things in the past, abuses like indulgences. There are tremendously beautiful buildings here in Montreal and around the world, church buildings that have been built on the back of incredibly cruel and, and unjust uh, practices that you know, financiers who have given tons of money into the church have gotten their money by doing really bad things and then thinking, well, if I give it to the church, maybe that makes it okay in God's eyes. You know, maybe, it's, maybe it's okay that I did these bad things if I just give the money to the church. That kind of understanding is probably born out of the assumption that if I give enough money away, then I'm going to be okay with God. That is a totally other way. It's, it's a really bad way of thinking, one that the Bible would not commend. What the Bible would commend and what the right response would be to understand that we are to, called to be generous in all forms of life. We are called to be generous out of a change of heart. And it is possible to have to give away money without having a change of heart. 1 Corinthians 13 points that out. If I give away all I have to be burned but have not love, I gain nothing. It's possible to give away a bunch of everything, give away everything without love, without a change of heart, and it'll achieve nothing. But the Bible will pretty much insist it's not possible to have a change of heart and not become generous as a result. You cannot think that your heart is truly changed unless you become a generous person as a result. And not only generous in the form of finance, but relationally generous in the sense that we give people a lot of space in terms of mercy and forgiveness. We become relationally generous. We also become emotionally generous, giving of ourselves into situations, investing ourselves into people, caring about what's going on in this world when we didn't necessarily have to care. We do care. And we become financially generous. Generous with our resources, like time and money and, and 
skills. We become generous with these things too. It's not possible to have a change of heart without it flowing out into generosity. And that can be a litmus test of whether or not you truly have a change of heart or not. As Jesus will say in uh, verse 13, no one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. What he's saying here is when you have a change of heart, you are going to stop serving money and you're going to begin serving God with your money. That is how it will change. And that type of attitude will show who your real master is and it will have this explosive effect on your heart. And really this cuts to the core of a lot of what we struggle with as, just as a human race. We have deep within ourselves a sense of selfishness, a sense of self-protectiveness, a sense of greed that have deep, deep roots upon our hearts. It's easy to fall into the trap of greed. It's easy to fall into the trap of selfishness when it comes to it, or fear when it comes to giving away our money. The pursuit of wealth can lead to all kinds of different uh, broken things. We can, it can cause us to ignore God. It can cause us to uh, undervalue and undermine our family. It can cause us to walk all over people or exploit uh, broken systems or exploit people or exploit the environment. It can cause to all of these different sins that we, ha we can see around us the tremendously negative impact that the pursuit of money has had on our world, both at a family level with the brokenness between families. If you have a family member who doesn't talk to another family member, nine times out of ten it's because of money. Like I know, there are members of my family, they don't talk to each other, why? Money. Someone did something with money that someone didn't agree with and now they don't talk to each other. Right? It happens to so many different families. We see it at a family level, we see it at a community level, we see it at a national level and a global level. We're seeing how the pursuit of money breaks things apart. We are called to go in a different direction. Not to serve money, which is what that pursuit would be, but to serve God with money. And what it begins with is an important realization. And the important realization is that we are all managers. All of us are managers. And what that means is that we are in charge of something that is not ours. Everything we have at our hands doesn't belong to us. That is where the, what the Bible teaches. Everything you have is a gift from God. Everything. And because of that, you have to treat it as if you are managing it, not owning it. All that we have is from God. We see this attitude in, in uh, King David. King David at the sort of, one of the high pinnacles of his career, of his whole kingly career, he praises God. And it's First uh, Chronicles chapter 29, verses uh, 10 to 14. This is, this is David's praise to God. He says this, David praised the Lord in the presence of the whole assembly, saying, Praise be to you, Lord, the God of our father Israel, from everlasting to everlasting. Yours, Lord, is the greatness and the power, the glory and the majesty and the splendor, for everything in heaven and on earth is yours. Yours, Lord, is the kingdom. You are exalted as head over it all. Wealth and honor come from you. You are the ruler of all things. In your hands are strength and power to exalt and give strength to all. All. Now, our God, we give you thanks. We praise your glorious name. But who am I and who are my people that we should be able to give as generously as this? Everything comes from you. 
We have given you only what comes from your hand. We are foreigners and strangers in your sight, as were all our ancestors. Our days on earth are like a shadow without hope. Lord our God, all this abundance that we have provided for building you a temple for your holy name comes from your hand. All of it belongs to you. What is David saying here? The resources, the energy, the everything, everything, the life we have, all of it is from God. We have this attitude pervasive in the world today that I've earned what I have. No, you haven't. Yes, you may have worked hard, but you were given life. Every breath you take comes from God. You were born into the situation you've been in. You've been given the opportunities you've been given. So much of your life was totally out of your hands. Maybe you've worked hard, but worked hard with what? The life you've been given, the opportunity you've been given, the resources you've been given, every, the situation you've been given, everything that has been given to you has led to your success. And it all comes from God. Everything comes from Him. And we are told that we are to manage it, to manage what we have been given. We are to handle it well. And like it says in verse uh, 11, <clears throat> So if you have not been trusty with, in handling worldly wealth, who will trust you with true riches? And if you have not been trustworthy with someone else's property, who will give you property of your own? What you have right now has been given to you. It's not yours. What you have right now is worldly wealth, not true riches. But how you manage it will determine whether or not you will receive true riches, whether or not you will receive property of your own from God in glory. How we manage it well, how we manage it will determine whether or not we gain permanent heavenly riches. And if we are managers, then as a manager we must anticipate the desires and the values of our boss, of our master, of God. And a good, a good illustration of this is like a, like a fund manager. Like if, you're, if you are in the finance world, you might be a fund manager. What that essentially means is that somebody else gives you money and says, I want you to manage the money for me. And this is the parameters. I want you to do this kind of stuff with it. If you take that money and you do whatever you want with it, it's not just bad, it's illegal. You cannot do that. You will be put in jail. In the same way, God calls us to use the money that we've been given a certain way according to His wishes. To not do so is not simply to be unkind and uh, miserly. It's theft. You are stealing from God. You are doing something that you are not supposed to do with the stuff He has given you. We are called to use the resources that we have been given in such a way that please God. And what He's calling us to do is invest what we have in light of eternity. What would please Him is for us to use what we have now to build for ourselves treasure in heaven. Now that's a loaded term that we're not really going to unpack together tonight because I don't ultimately know what that means. But what I do know is we are called to live in light of eternity and to do things that will gain for us advantages and reward in the world to come. Now even though we don't know specifically what that is, we do know specifically how we are to do that. And we do that through investing into people. In the same way that you would invest in the stock market, in the same way that you would invest into gold, we are called to invest into people. That is going to be our great investment strategy. I'm going to pour all of what I got into who? People. Needy people. 
people who are vulnerable, people who are poor, that is going to be our investment strategy. Crazy, yet exactly what God is calling us to do. Our motivation at its core is we do this because we understand this is God's desire. It is pleasing to God that we use what we have generously so that others may be blessed. We do it to please God. Why? Because He loves people. He loves people. And so we love people as a result of that as well. Put your money into people. This verse goes on to basically say, money is temporary, but people are permanent. Money is, money is fleeting, but people will last forever. That makes it a solid investment. Uh, Jim Elliott, uh, a missionary, who said this once, he said, he is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep to gain what he can never lose. It is not foolish to give up what you can't keep anyway to gain what you will never lose. So at this point, we need to be asking ourselves a very serious question. And the question is, why are you rich? Because you are rich. You live in Montreal. You have tertiary education. Almost all of you do. You have a roof over your head. You have money in the bank. You already are, by those facts alone, in like the top 5% of all the world. Just by those facts alone. We live incredibly luxurious lives in a world that by and large is impoverished. And now God has given you this. This is a gift from God. Why? Why? Why has God given you this? Why has God blessed you with this? What do you think the answer is? To give it away. It must be that he has put us in these positions so that we might use what we have to give to other people, to bring to them the same kind of blessing. To give to people who have no opportunity, an opportunity. To, pe to give to people who have no security, some sense of security. We are rich so that we might use our riches to bless others. Care for the needy is all over the Bible. It's all over it. From the Old Testament to the New, some of the most deeply rooted identity issues that we are called to adopt as a community is care for those who are needy in our community and without. Some of the things that have set the church apart throughout history is our care for the needy. That we have gone to places where no one else has gone. That we have set up things that no one else has thought to set up for those who are impoverished in the world. By and large, the history of, uh, of the last 2,000 years is the history of the church leading the charge in humanitarian issues. We cannot drop the ball as this generation. We must continue to lead that charge, both at an individual level and at a corporate level as a church. We continue to do so. We cry out to a needy world, we care about your needs, and so does our God. That is our cry. And therefore, we use our money to meet people's needs, as Jesus is telling us to do in verse, uh, <clears throat> verse 9. I tell you, use worldly wealth to gain friends for yourself, so that when it is gone, you will be welcomed into eternal dwellings. Jesus will say it more plainly in other passages, but he will insist time and time again that we are called to sell what we have and give to the poor. That is what we are called to do. 
And so what that means is, as good investors should, we are constantly looking for a good investment to give, good opportunities to give. So we should be looking for good ministries to be able to put money towards, solid causes to be able to invest in, to help people to flourish, people in our lives individually that we know, person to person, to be able to help and to bless with the different resources we have. And that verse 9 is interesting because it says to gain friends. And I think there's a double meaning there. Because on one hand, we can obviously see how gaining friends can be achieved through using your wealth to help them. By helping someone else, you're going to gain a friend. That's a beautiful thing. We understand how that works. But Jesus connects it to heaven. He says, so that when it is gone, you will be welcomed into eternal dwellings. I think we're supposed to take it a little bit further than just simply thinking about gaining friends in this world. There is a literal side to it, but I believe there's a connection to think of one specific friend that we will make through such an attitude. A friend in Jesus. That Jesus will, we will gain a friend in Jesus if we use our money, our resources to this end. We will gain friendship with God. It is His friendship that we actually need to do this in the first place. The idea of giving my money away honestly does not light my heart on fire. I'll be honest. When, if I was just told by the Bible, you know, you should give your money away, I'd be like, well, maybe I'll do it begrudgingly. Maybe I'll do it because you say so. But there's not going to be any genuine joy in me doing that. But the Bible doesn't just stop there. It draws us in and opens our heart by showing us who was our friend first, by who was our true neighbor, who was our ultimate friend, who one who has already emptied himself of all his wealth to make us, who were once his enemy, now his friend. We are called to see Jesus Christ, to see his generosity, and become generous as a result. And the pathway is actually more profound than you think. We are called explicitly to use Jesus Christ's generosity to empower our own generosity. In 2 Corinthians chapter nine, uh, sorry, chapter 8, verse 9, Paul is exhorting the Corinthians to give to a, a, a deep cause that was going on at the moment, some people who were in a lot of trouble. And he's saying, look, I want you to give, but I don't want you to give because I'm telling you. I want, to give, I want you to give out of love. And then he shows us how to gain that love that we need. He says in verse 9, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that, what, so that through his poverty you might become rich. We have already the ultimate friend who has given away his riches for us, become poor for us, so that through his poverty, we might become rich. We have a true friend in Jesus. And when we gain that understanding of, wow, Jesus Christ has done this for me already. I have become rich through his poverty. We should, if we understand and our heart is actually embracing this truth, want to express our gratitude to that. To say, man, thank you, Jesus. Thank you for what you've done. I love you. I want to give something back to you. I want to show you how much I love you. It would be only right 
to want to show that kind of love for, towards Jesus, to say, I love you and I want to show my love to you by doing this. And what we're supposed to do is take those feelings of gratitude, take those feelings of, of I sense, I guess, unexpressed love, and we are to express them towards those who are hungry and hurting and oppressed in this world. It explicit, Jesus explicitly tells us that that will be the mark of a true disciple in Matthew 25. And on the, on the day of judgment, those who will be brought in versus those who will not be brought in is going to be on the idea of when I was hungry, you fed me. When I was thirsty, you gave me a drink of water. When I was sick, you came to visit me. And people are going to say, Jesus, when did we do this? And he's going to say, when you did it for the least of these, you did it for me. What Jesus is saying, and I can't stress enough, in a quite a literal way, that he is present in this world disguised as the needy, disguised as the impoverished. And that when the, the, the love that we want to show to Jesus, he has left the poor and needy in this world as to be the heirs, the recipients of the love that he deserves. He comes to us and he says, if you want to love me, great. You should want to love me. Do so by loving them. Do so by giving them the gratitude, the love, the care that I deserve. That is what he is calling us to do. It is a bold call, but one that he has adequately prepared us for with the change of heart that he has already provided. And the only way I know that we can do this is if we call upon God's help to do so. As I said already, the love of money runs deep in us. The desire that, that money can give us, that desire for status or the desire for security or the desire for affluence and luxury, these things run deep in our heart and we need to turn our attention constantly to Jesus to, to shed these things and to instead adopt godly attitudes to understand that we are simply managers of all that we have and that he has left the poor and the needy in this world as the true heirs and recipients of the love that he deserves. Let's pray together. Dear Jesus, we need your help. We are unable to do this without your change of heart. We thank you, God, that you have already paved the way by becoming poor so that we might be rich. And we pray, Lord, that you would help us to be shrewd, to be wise, to be forward-thinking in the way that we handle our money, to know that what we have is not ours, but it is yours, and you have given us explicit instructions of how to use it. God, help us to see that this is a crucial issue, that you have given us opportunities in our life to give away our money, to invest what we have so that we might gain true riches one day. Help us, God, to put this at the very center of our vision of the life you're calling us to live, not as a periphery, not as a nice add-on, but truly what is fundamentally true about our lives is our generosity. Help us, God, to make this shift in our hearts and in our heads to go against the current that is so deeply ingrained within us. We need your help. We cannot do this without you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.
Thank you for listening. If you're interested in having more information about CU20 or the church we're affiliated to, feel free to go on our website, peoplesmontreal.org, where you can find more resources, sermons, information about small groups, and our service hours on Sundays. Thank you. Have a good day.